Welcome to the Teacher As Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Milner, a teacher who is painfully curious and very easily inspired. This podcast is ever-changing, and I hope with each season, you find episodes that speak to you in your work as an educator. This is the fourth season of the Teacher As, and it's exciting to see the growth in how many educators are listening. Episodes are released every other week. If you enjoy the Teacher As, please rate it on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It helps the podcast reach more educators. Thanks for listening. I am thrilled to have Thomas Taylor here on The Teacher As. Welcome to The Teacher As, Thomas. Hello. Thank you for inviting me on. Do you prefer Tom, Thomas? I get both, so I don't mind either. Okay. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. It is quite an honor uh, to have the author of the book that my students yell at me when I try to stop reading it. they yelled no in unison so (laughs) so malamander is a fantastic book so i wanted to start by you because this is for teachers to hopefully want to read this aloud to their students but i think it's also great to talk about you as a writer and and helping teachers know how to inspire kids to write these types of amazing characters and fun plots and mystery and science fiction and fantasy. I mean, your book is kind of all of it. Let us know about you and how you got started and why Malamander. Yeah, so, I mean, I started out as an illustrator um, and my career began a long time ago. In fact, I was I left art school in 95. So I and I went almost straight into illustrating children's books. Um, so I had a whole career in picture books for um, up until about 2007. By which point it was pretty clear that I really wanted to write. I was already writing the picture books as well as illustrating them, but I was—I really wanted to explore language, and I, it was not enough. Five hundred words on a twelve-spread format wasn't enough, so I began um, uh, trying to write uh, fiction. And um, after a brief, perhaps not so brief, uh, foray into YA, which it turned out not to suit me at all, I kind of <laughs> came back to the drawing board, as it were, the writing board, and. Um, and I realised everything I'd written in the YA books, only one of which was published, um, that was that was strongest, was basically middle grade in, in tone. It was basically for a slightly different um, subgenre of children's literature. And I, I when I actually realised that and went back and started writing something purely for that age range, it, it really worked. And at the time I was living, I, I used to live in France, but I'd come back to the UK and I was living in this seaside town, which I didn't really know. And um, but loved being by the sea, and I was able to be there all year round. So I was able to see what it's like in the winter. Because in the in the UK, we have a lot of there's a lot strong culture of going to the seaside in the summer. The weather's always really bad anyway. But um, there isn't such a strong idea about what it's like in the winter. And so I was there all year round, and I could see how very odd it is in the winter. How the weather is very strange. How there's hardly anyone there. They're just the locals, but the people who are there. They've all got interesting stories. Anyone who does come then at that time of year has come for a really good reason or maybe a really bad reason. And and it just lent itself to to being a great backdrop for mystery stories. So very quickly, while I was having this idea that I should be writing middle grade, I I also had had, had material for a story. And that's how Malamanda grew. It grew out of the world I I had around me and about out of um, things I found on the beach, basically beach combing. And I just grew the story walking on the beach every day until eventually it was finished and then published. That's amazing. 
Uh, when you wrote it, did you have any idea that you were going to end up having to write, well, enjoying having to write sequels? So, no, when, when I first, I'd actually told people I'd given up writing because my experience trying to, to make a go of, of YA was so bad that, um, yeah, I told everybody I was going back to illustration. I had illustration work. I was writing almost in secret. I was writing it in the background. My wife, I told my wife, don't worry, I'm not going to write anymore. Because she, you know, she'd see what it was like. <laughs> so I, I, I was writing it in secret. And um, it was only when my agent called me and said, uh, do you have anything else on the go? Because you know, you're finishing this big, I had this big uh, graphic novel project. And I was finishing it. And she said, you, know, you ought to sort of generate something. And I said, well, I have been writing this book even though I said I'd stop writing. And so she um, she asked to see the first few chapters and got very excited about it. And so um, she told me to stop everything else and just finish this book. She's very, very smart. She's very, very <laughs> yes. smart. I think Boat, doesn't Boat Hook Man show up in the very beginning there within the first I sent her nine chapters. So she had all the way up to meeting Sebastian Eels in the bookshop. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she was very excited about it, and that was that was very, 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 very good. And it, it, I hadn't really, I'd sort of lost track of, of, I'd lost my own sense of my own writing, I suppose. So I didn't really know if it was any good or not, or even if I was going to show it to anybody. I was just trying, for almost for my own satisfaction, to prove I could write a book, and was just going through the motions really. Um, so then, when it was published, and it was the subject of an auction between eight publishers, um, very quickly they they said, "Well, how you know?" it became a question, how many more books could you write? And quite early on, I, I kind of hit on the idea that five would be a nice number, you know, because <laughs> it is a nice yeah. number. Three, I think, is fine. But I, I knew that there was probably more material here than for a trilogy. Yeah. Um, Did you have to change the ending once they asked you that? Well, the thing is, originally, because of the auction, the auction resulted in a three-book deal. So there was an assumption from a lot of people that it was going to be a trilogy, but then when I was writing that third book, it was quite clear that I wasn't ending anything. And so it right. became another conversation. Well, what's, you know, what's going on? Why isn't this book, you know, a resolution? <laughs> and I said, well, the thing is, I've got two more ideas coming up. So if we talk about that. And so in the end, they gave me a, uh, an extension to the contract. And we did have to wow. talk a lot about the the content of book five and the ending. Because there is this, the first book introduces some questions that aren't resolved at the end of the book. And they won't be resolved until book five. They'll become a subject of the story okay. in book five. Is that Violet's parents Violet's or parents, Herbie's parents? Violet's parents and Herbie's. Herbie, where he comes from. Um, yeah. The questions, I don't want to spoil book one too much, but you don't quite get yeah. that resolution in that book, and that's deliberate. Right. So the books in between will then be separate stories, but they will sort of, these questions tick over, but you don't really get any resolution. And so the last book is all about that. And yeah. I had to sell that to the publishers, basically, before I'd written it. And I was still working on book three. I was having to explain book five, which is a bit difficult. Yeah. Wow. But you had this whole vision. And you, like, as you were doing it, you were getting new ideas for new books. Yeah. That's, fa that's just fascinating. And you, you, you wanted them to be those same characters. Like, you could have stopped at the three book and started a new, you know how people do yeah. that. They start a new series under the Malamander Chronicles or whatever, <laughs> and you start a new series. Mm -hmm. Like you certainly could have done that, but no, I love that it's just boom. Yeah. Is that your dog? I think my, I don't, I'm not sure. I think my dog might be trying to join us. Um, we'll find out in a minute. But it's true. Yeah, I could have done that. And also the whole thing is set from the point of view of um, Herbie, the main character. Herbie. So yeah. you only ever see what Herbie sees. 
And actually, that gets quite tiring for a while. I bet. You, like, wait, how am I going to get this incorporated? Yeah. Right. The, mis- the mystery is hard. So you never oh, have a moment when you, you're with the other characters alone. Herbie has to be there. And so Herbie's not the only main character. There are two main characters. The other one is Violet. But you never see anything from Violet's point of view. And that became frustrating. After a while, I thought, I'd like to be inside Violet's head for a bit. But I'd set myself on this track where that wasn't likely to happen. And so... Um, so yeah. you couldn't switch and have one of the books be from Violet's point of view? Well, I could have done. Been... I could have done. And I think some people do try and do that. But I, I'm not sure. I think readers, once, they, once they've latched on to something they like, they like to stick with that voice. Yeah. And Herbie's voice is very distinctive. It is. <laughs> and, um, so th- in the end, I had to really make sure Violet was constantly boosted so that she wasn't a secondary character. It's very important that she's one of the main characters. She absolutely is. You did a good job with that, I will tell you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, like, the kids, are, the kids I'm like, who's the main character? We've had that discussion while we're doing the read aloud. And they're like, uh, well, Violet's really important. and But but Herbie's telling the story. But Violet's, Violet, the, the, there wouldn't be a story without Violet. So like, they're really, exactly, yeah. they're really, it's, they're getting yeah. into deep conversations about it. Um, they mm. also, the, the sci-fi piece of it is so fascinating. They really are digging it. They're like, maybe he went back in time before they knew what had happened. Oh, Not okay. to give anything away with Boathook Man. No, no. Uh, they, they're just, Boathook Man's their favorite character. Oh, okay. They, yeah, they just are, they love him. And they love his little arc. You know, what happens? Right. Oh, he's not really a bad guy. It's just that, you know, them going through that whole thing of <laughs> yeah. he's a bad guy to, oh, wait a minute. And finding out what happened to him and not, again, not to give anything. I should do a spoiler alert at the beginning of this. It's just fantastic. So why didn't you illustrate the book? Well, that's a good question. So um, I, I I mean, most of my, uh, of my illustration career was... Um, uh, a picture books for a different age group. So the, the work I'd done most was a bit too young, really, for this. But I had done some some, some book covers. And so um, when it came to it, though, I was so out of, out of touch with it, so rusty, basically. And yeah. when I worked on, on that kind of thing last, it was mostly um, in with old-fashioned and traditional methods of you know, paint on paper and, 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 and pen and ink. And I'm not really, I mean, I have sort of made the jump to digital, but only partially. I haven't quite got there. Whereas most book covers now are done, it's it's entirely done on Procreate or something similar. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 created in a way that, that, that can be changed very quickly. And it's done very, very quickly. And there's a committee who sit and oversee it all. And it's very, very, very important to get it right. And I'm just not in that headspace at all. And I, I had to... Yeah. I had to revise the book. I had to do black and white drawings for the inside. Taking on the cover as well was just too much. And they had yeah. somebody, the publisher had somebody already to go. And in the so US. You did, you did sketches to give the illustrator I like what you were going for. Is that what you did? Well, sort of. So it's, in, it's different in the UK to the US. So the, U, the UK book, um, someone else did the cover, but I did all these little drawings inside. But they're very small. They're just chapter heading drawings. Whereas in the U- US, um, the publishers in the US wanted it to be quite heavily illustrated. And so they got um, Tom Booth to, to to do the illustrations. And he's just just brilliant. I mean, you, you, well, you would have seen these. So they are fantastic. And what, what, what I find really great about them is that um, he's absolutely caught the, in his style, matches the, the tone of the story really well. They're amazing. 
but I would never have wanted to do this much illustration work. I'd kind of burnt out as an illustrator. And so the idea of drawing this much was a bit intimidating. So I'm really, really proud to have him on board for the US editions. But it's, it's not the same in the UK. There are different, it's a different um, look. I came upon the book. What do you call it when it's the copy that's not finished yet? Advanced reader copy or a proof report in the UK. That's it. So I was at our local um, uh, bookstore right near where I teach. Shout out for White Lamb Books and in Reading, Massachusetts. They said, oh, we have all these advanced copies we don't need anymore. So go through. And I'm going through. And I will tell you, the cover caught me. And then I read on the back and I was hooked. I'm like, I'm taking this one. And I read it like in like two nights. Like I, I read it when I got home and then I like finished it the next night. I, I couldn't put it down. And then I walked in the classroom the next day and started reading it to my students. Okay. They were thir- I was teaching third third grade at the time. And um, it was a huge hit. And the other teachers and assistants and paraprofessionals were like, can I take a copy home and finish it? Because I want to know what okay. happens. They were like, I'm not in the classroom tomorrow and I don't right, want to okay. miss it. So uh, it it's like for a good age range, I I think. This year, also loving it. I think it's really like a third, fourth, fifth grade hmm. um, as far as a read aloud. And then sixth, six, seven, eight, they could just read it, obviously, especially since it's now a series, they can get through it pretty quickly. But can you tell us about, I saw that you are helping to adapt the screenplay, that you're helping to adapt the book into a movie screenplay. Is that true? Well, <laughs> this is a bit awkward. So um, there, there, have been, there has been a film deal in place and there has been a script developed. That's not proceeding. That didn't survive um, COVID, basically. It, it, by the time COVID was over, it was kind of dead. Oh, they totally they totally need to do the movie, and it needs to be all five. It would actually make a better, like, a streaming show, because then you're not limited to that hour-and-a-half movie. I think there's enough material here for, for, for a TV show. I think one of the problems during the lockdown period is there was suddenly doubt over whether there was even going to be a movie-going culture after COVID, that so many cinemas shut down, and the intention had been to make a big family movie, and so suddenly no one knows what's going on. So that I think that was a bit undermining for the whole project. Well, I can talk a bit about what I do when I go into schools, because I do visit schools quite a lot. That might be of, of – um, I mean, I'm going to a school tomorrow. I mean, I – I'll be going to three next week. So I do visit schools a lot in the UK, and the book has found um, a lot of readers at schools in the UK. It's a very popular class reader just just for reading for pleasure. So it's not really – it doesn't really fit the curriculum in any way. It just – it is for reading for pleasure, and that's really why I, I, I wanted to write it. I want to try and encourage the love of reading um, among young people. And I go, when I go into schools, I bring props. So I have a lot of um, – Bits and pieces to show. Have I got my ace? I have. Because I'm going tomorrow. I can get anything ready. <laughs> oh, let me take some pictures. I want to take some pictures. Hold on. Well, I, well, well, do I want to wear it? I suppose I do. But the, the point is, I don't think authors should go into schools and stand up and read at the children. And personally, I'm not very good at reading my own text. So I try and talk about everything but the book. I try and talk about all the ideas in the book. <laughs> I do have props. So, for example, this is... Um, Mr. Mollusk. No, Herbie. No, this is Her- Herbie, Herbie Lemon's um, Lost and Founders cap that has travelled very very well. It's falling apart, actually. <laughs> it's even been to the US. It did come to the US with me when I went to, 
to America um, for a book tour. I love the L and the F for Lost and Founders. Oh, my gosh. So I I always have a volunteer who wears this and is then the Lost and Founder for the whole session. And then I have beachcomb things I found, um, fossils, a dinosaur uh, bone I found on the beach. And a dinosaur poo. I always like the coprolite. And and then there are... (laughs) Things like that. And I make sure it's very tactile. I pass things around um, and people get to try on the hat and it's just a lot of fun. And I find that um, that's gone down really well in schools in the UK. And so I, I'm, um, I'm, I'm very pleased to find that. And this next week coming up, it's World Book Day. I don't know whether you do World Book Day in the same way in the US. But um, yeah. so normally on World Book Day, there are some children who dress up as Herbie and Violet, which is for me just um, so you know, the best thing. That's like the best accolade there can be. It's someone dressing up as characters from my book. Oh, um, that's wonderful. We'll find out this week if anyone else is doing that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny because you mentioned, well, it doesn't really fit into the curriculum, like the content of the curriculum. However, it does fit under genre because it's one of those books that has multiple genres in it the kids are like you said this was a fantasy but it's a mystery i said well it's both you know it's sci-fi it's you know fantasy mythical all that um and and then it's also i mean it's kind of i i find it to be humorous too so even the genre of humor is is in there with herbie and and a whole bunch of things that happen actually in the book are kind of humorous so yeah that, um, I mean I very yeah. very deliberately I'm trying to write the funniest books I can yeah. without them being called funny books that's the, exactly the, kind of the trick really yeah so when you were a kid is this the type of book you liked yeah I think so I mean I, there's that old cliche but authors writing writing the sort of book they would have wanted to read when they were young and, I'm, and that is what I'm doing really yeah. um uh so I I mean when I was a child I loved uh, the three investigators um I always forget the name of the author, but the, they were always published under the name of Alfred Hitchcock. So oh. a famous name. He didn't write them. He, he lent his <laughs> name to them. Um, I mean, this goes back a bit now. I think they were published. They're from the US, but I think they were from the 60s. And they were three three kids who lived in a junkyard. And they didn't live in the junkyard. They made a sort of den there. And they, they solved crime. And I just loved these. And it was the first time that... I- I found books that I really wanted to read. And that's why I, I can recall them because they were the first books I would grab and read on my own. And that sense of um, finding the book you love and becoming a reader is an important thing. I try to, well, I mean, it's also subjective, isn't it? But I try to, and that's what I'm thinking about when I'm writing my stories. I want some some kids somewhere to <laughs> like my book so much that they'll yeah. go home and keep reading it, even when they're not told to. That's what I'm aiming at. Um, well, they're doing it. I'll tell you, <laughs> very <laughs> much so. And I think I saw a picture. You were, I don't know where. Were, what was it? Korea or uh, no? Where were you? There was a. Whole... Oh, in December, I went to Turkey in December. Turkey, that's where it was. Yeah. That the was... books were really, really popular in Turkey. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible. And I had, um, I think, the biggest signing event I've ever had was actually in in Istanbul, and it was three and a half hours. <laughs> The queue just carried on. It just was amazing. Um, That's incredible. They're all standing there with their books. It was such yeah. a great picture. I saw that. Um, yeah, that's amazing. I uh, I I find that the kids, as a teacher, I appreciate your book because the characters are so well-defined that 
because I, I, I act the books when I read a lot, I act. And so they're very well defined. And so I'm able to very easily slip in and out of characters because they're so, they're so well done, you know? So the Mr. Mollus compared to Herbie compared to Lady Kraken, you know, and then I picture, I will admit, I picture different actors playing the parts. I think it, I mean, I, I wrote it, I mean, I've got a very visual imagination, so I do tend to see everything before I I write it. So I'm, I'm trying to describe what I see in my head. So I think it's written in a way that is very pictorial. It's very um, image-led. Yes. I still think um, Hugh Grant should be Sebastian Eels, but, you know, I don't get to decide these things. <laughs> What's your advice to teachers to help whatever story they want to tell, to help teachers, to help kids get those stories down, create interesting characters, create a you know beginning, middle and end plot, but like that rising action and the character trying something and, you know, all of that angst that a character goes through to finally get to the climax. Like, what's your advice for teachers? Yeah, that's tricky. I mean, I don't feel I should be giving advice to teachers, really, because it's, I'm not in the slightest bit trained to um, <laughs> to deal with kids in the classroom. And I see, I see when I go into schools, what I see, I see how hard they work. So, but what do you feel is most important? Yeah, I think as a writer, I mean, I, I'm known for writing uh, very short chapters that end on a on a hook, so that it's very hard to say, well, that's enough now. I'm going to stop. I want people to just turn again and just read it, and then it's a short chapter again. And so that is a, just a, a small technique, but it helps to keep um, it helps to keep the reader kind of locked in to just read a bit more, just a bit more. That's why they yell when I close the book. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm doing that, but I'm also very conscious that you can't. Um, this is quite tricky to do, but you have to. The whole the old adage of show show don't tell is very important. But you have to let you have to give the reader something to do. So rather than just tell the reader what's happening, if if you can think of ways to um, let the reader work out what's happening, often in quite an easy way. So instead of saying um, instead of saying four, you would you would give the reader two plus two and let them work out four. And it can be as, as, as easy as that. But because they've done something in their heads as they've read it, they oh I, okay I, oh I see. They, that invests them a little bit more in the story. They feel like they're doing some. They don't consciously feel like they're working, but they feel like they're they're part of making the story. I I think anyway. So I'm often looking at little things I can do to to make the reader feel like they're helping to tell the story almost. Do you see, do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. To to cause them to have to infer, not telling them everything. Yes. Yeah, and exactly. it doesn't it doesn't no. mean it has to be a mystery book. It can just be simply why is this girl coming to his window in the middle of a snow? You know, we don't know why she's yeah. there yet. And then when she comes in and it ex- describes her, then we can be like, oh, well, maybe she's there because of like kids can be predicting why maybe she's there. It allows the kids to be working. Yeah. And lots of lots of classes in the UK certainly they they use the text to um, to make to make predictions. So that's one of the um, uh, projects that's set. They they read a certain amount and then they sit down and have to predict what will happen next. And that seems to yes. be a very popular um, exercise. But um, again, I haven't really thought of that myself. But this seems to be a thing that you know, goes down really well in the classroom. It does. It does. They do a lot of predicting. They do a lot. They they take. Like my class this year, 
because they're a little older than the last time I read it with my third graders. My class this year, they're like, well, in other movies, they do this and this and this. So maybe it'll be this or in this book I read. So they do like a text to text connection and say, well, maybe he's doing that because when well, I don't want to give anything away, with Boat Hook Man, <laughs> oh, yeah, but they were really like, they were obsessed with Boat Hook Man and figuring out what was going on with Boat Hook okay. Man. Because in the beginning, and this is the thing, in the beginning, you have him say something hmm. that is very like the, about freedom. And the kids are hmm. like, what? Why would a little girl be giving him free? Like, why is he saying hmm. that? To, and that set them off with right. all, a whole bunch. Of, and you don't really find out till kind of later when she gets yeah. the book from the from the book dispensary and then sees what yeah so it's very they love the book dispensary and the monkey thing too by the okay, way okay yeah <laughs> loved it and that's very deep by the way hmm. it gives you the book the book is choosing you like that's huge about being a reader yeah you know finding the book that's right for you and so we had a big discussion about that uh, your book is just rich with all kinds of stuff like that. Really great. Really great. And, um, oh, and also, I mean, Violet is, is an African-American girl. So you have a nice, strong female character there who um, really gives Herbie a run for his money. Yeah. Well, as you said earlier, there would be, there would be no story yeah. if Violet didn't come. I mean, Herbie, he's, he's a, Herbie's based on me when I was, when I was a boy. So Herbie's a bit, um, he's not quite adventurous enough to quite have adventures on his own. <laughs> Whereas Violet's too much. She's on her own. She probably had too much adventure and get into a bit of a pickle. Uh, but, but put them together and they they complement each other really well. Yes. And I did a compare and contrast with the kids because I knew they were going to say they had nothing in common. Uh, and, and and one kid raised their hand and said, well, what about their parents? They both don't, they both have identity issues. Yeah. <laughs> like, there you go, you know. So the kids get stuff like that. Yeah. They really do. They really do. It is do. an eye-opener going and, into a school and talking about you, even my own book. And they re- reflect back things to me, which I hadn't actually th- thought of. I got yeah. to think of my feet as I answer the question that's really awkward, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And theme, like I asked the kids, what's the theme <laughs> of this book so far? You know, what do you think the theme is? And I, you know, one kid said identity, which I thought was really cool because of them not knowing their identity. Um but then some of them said, what was one of them that was like, uh, be careful what you wish for oh. because of the whole living forever and, you know, and, and then the curse and the, you know, all that stuff. So don't, you know, be careful what you wish for mm-hmm. was a really cool one. Um, friendship, you know, you know, some of the regular ones, but then there were a couple, I don't remember the other ones, mm-hmm. but um, so your book brings out a lot of different things a lot of different themes Good. did you have a theme in mind when you were writing it I, or you just wanted to tell a I mean, story? a friendship friendship's very important i like to write about friendship but it's things being lost and things being found is the, the theme i was writing about so it's it's the experience as a beachcomber of finding a thing on the beach that is is beautiful and strange in its own right but you can tell it used to be something else that somebody else knew as as that something else that was then lost and then changed by the tide and now found again and now it's a treasure so an old glass bottle thrown away as a piece of trash 60 years ago is smashed by the sea, churned in the tide. And then, yes, it could be 60 years. And then it's you walk along and you find a pebble made of glass glowing in the sand. And that's a gem. That's a thing you pick up and treasure. But the thing itself, where it, where it, where it comes from, was trash that was thrown away by a different generation. And you have no way of knowing who threw it away 
and they had no way of knowing that you would pick it up one day as a treasure. And all those sorts of thoughts are, are, are what drove the story. That's great. Yeah. And then the other ideas of lost, whereas, you know, now these two, the two different kids who are lost as yeah. far as not having their parents and trying yeah. to find. They are, but they are, they are like, both yeah. lost and they are, they found each other, but they haven't found themselves yet. And that's the, the driver for the story. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. That's so awesome. Wow. Well, uh, this was, this is great. I don't want to take up any more of your time, but was there anything else you wanted to talk about? Or uh, I'm not really in pl- pl- <laughs> I mean, the fifth book is coming out in September. So I hope people will, will find that um, and the right time. That's in the UK though. I'm not quite sure in the US. It's possibly the year after actually. Okay. The, the fourth book isn't out in the US until April. So there is a slight delay there. Um, so yeah, Festigrim book number four isn't out yet. I have oh, do you? I ah. have the fourth book. Yeah, I have the I have oh, all okay. four. Maybe it's out already. Well they haven't sent me one yet. That's yeah, all it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, that's good. I'm glad it's out. I'm glad it's the out. The author doesn't have one. <laughs> yeah, no, I have all four, but um yeah. I'm waiting for that fifth <laughs> one. Is there anything you're like really zooming in on right now? Is it just finishing? Are you still doing the edits for the fifth book? Zooming in. I am still editing the fifth book, but um, I've just finished the second draft. So I, I think it's kind of there. So it's quite a hard one to write, actually, because there's a lot, a lot to tie up. And there are some eye-opening things in it as well. I've got to get those right. Uh, but I'm also w- trying to refine a new idea. So I, I have a new a new thing I want to, to work on. And I, I've started working on it, but it's very much it's slightly exploratory. I'm trying to find out if it's really... Is it still for kids? Oh yeah, yeah, it is. In fact, Yay! it's 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 basically it's not Eerie on Sea and Herbie and Violet, but it's the same type of book in a kind of broader universe. So if if you if you wonder where creatures like the Malamanda came from, then you might find out where it could where maybe it did come from in this. Yeah, you know what I mean, so it's different, but it's the same. Different world, but same universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh wow! Well, that's I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. But that's down the road a little bit because you're still finishing the fifth book. Yeah, I need to concentrate this year. It has to be about the fifth book, really. And there's a lot of promotion coming up and things to do. Um, yeah. yeah, that's so great. Well, I'm sure everybody listening, just trust me, get all the books, read the first one, and then your kids will be fighting over the the other ones. To Yeah, I always read the first one and then make sure I have copies of the rest of the series type of thing. But I think yeah. I might have to get more. Um, and uh, I, I I just just one more thing, because usually when we have author visits, we always ask um, the authors to talk about um, the value of editing, the, the never feeling like you're done, always knowing you could make it better. Do you have any message that you want teachers to know about that? I mean, it's very, that point about it's never done is um, the whole editing process is quite painful because there comes a point where you can feel the manuscript being taken away from you and it's sliding away. And you know, you look at the date and you know that that window is closing to make changes. But every time it comes back with a query, I find myself making changes. And there comes that moment when it's gone and you can no longer change anything. And then I don't usually read my own books, but for this fifth one, I had to go back and look at, the previous books and read and read parts of them 
And I keep finding things I want to change, but of course you can't do that anymore. So <laughs> you do have to learn how to let things go and how to sort of decide something's finished, even when, as you say, it's never really finished. And you could go on revising forever, but you shouldn't yeah. go on revising forever. That'd be really bad. So you have to let it go. And um and that's an important part of the of the editing process that it does have an end and you you are then done. And the other thing that's important is you do need that other pair of eyes, that other mind, that other reader to come and look at what you've done. Because you get so wrapped up, especially if it's a novel and it's 70,000 words and you've been sunk in it for months. You need someone to come along and tell you if it works, you know, or if it makes sense. And because you you see everything, you see even the things you haven't put on the page, you still know all that stuff. And you forget what you have told people, what, what, what you've told the reader might be um, not enough. But you don't know that until an editor comes along and tells you that. So that's that's a key part of editing. That's so important. And like in the classroom, that would look like peer editing and, of course, maybe a teacher, you know, just giving ideas here and there. Thank you so much. Not every author would do this, by the way. Thank you, Melissa. It's been, it's been good. Thank you. Cheerio. For my blog, transcripts of this episode, and links to any resources mentioned, visit my website at www.theteacheras.com. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Melissa B. Milner. And I hope you check out the Teacher As Facebook page for episode updates. Thanks for listening. And that's a wrap.